I'm back. <laughs> wow, is it good to be home. Just spent almost a week in the suburbs of Chicago. And I spent the last two days at uh, Willow Creek at the Reveal Now conference. Wow. We're going to be talking about the Reveal Now conference today. My takeaways... We'll be playing some uh, sound bites and some clips from some of the things that were said at the Reveal Now conference, and we'll give, be giving you our commentary. In fact, I've probably got total, when this is all said and done, enough material for about five or six different programs here. That's not exactly why I went, but um, there's so many different topics that I could uh, discuss, and uh, we're going to need to unpack all of that. Uh, welcome to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job as serving you is to uh, bring you a daily dose of biblical discernment and to uh, use the Word of God to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Apparently that doesn't work with the Dodgers, though, does it, John? <laughs> yeah, we're still proud. Yeah, anybody who uh, sends me an email rubbing my nose in the fact that the Philadelphia Phillies beat the Dodgers. Um, I'm going to put a little rule together in my email program. That will that email will get automatically flushed. I, I, yeah, I'm i bitter here. Their manager played for the Dodgers? Yeah. Their first base? Their first baseman played for the Dodgers? Right. So, yeah. It's, it's just sad. <laughs> we were hoping for a, a freeway series between the Angels and the Dodgers – and uh, we came up with a big zero, nothing. We're, we're goose egg. Now we got to watch Philadelphia play. Who? Who do you, is Tampa Bay beating? Uh, yeah. yeah, Tampa Bay is beating uh, the Sox. I mean, it's it's looking like it's going to be the Philadelphia Phillies and the Devil Rays. So, who would have thunk? You know, we were hoping for Angels versus Dodgers. Uh, Zippo on that one. Nope, that didn't work. <laughs> So we'll, uh, John and I will be uh, – <laughs> he's wearing his Dodgers jersey today, uh, which is funny. Is that is that the Roseboro one? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's, uh, John here, our, our tech guy, he's uh, wearing a Dodgers jersey. It's number eight, uh, Johnny Roseboro's uh, uh, jersey. And Roseboro is spelled differently. He used, he's, used to be a catcher for the Dodgers. And so, you know, and, you know, John's been around the block a couple more times than I have. So he remembers uh, Johnny Roseboro playing. I don't. I, I was, uh, let me see. I was, the, the team I watched was the Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Ron Say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I know that's not why you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. But I thought, you know, let's just throw that in there. Talk about how bitter we are. And we'll go from there. Just so you know, today's uh, show, we're not going to be going through listener email. It, it's a little bit backlogged right now. I understand that. Just got back from traveling. And uh, so we will be getting to it. Uh, we have some more entries in the Name the, the Pastor contest. Who wrote that article? Uh, Learn to Love Yourself. And uh, the, <laughs> I think when I, as soon as I took Osteen and Schuler off the table, everyone got a radar fix on it, and they now know who it is who wrote that uh, article. So it's going to be fun to go through those emails, but not today. And uh, keep the emails coming regarding Doug Paget. I'm getting a lot, a lot of fun commentary on that. And then I don't know if we'll do this tomorrow. It just depends on uh, how the program goes today. We might get to uh, comment on the, the stuff that Doug Paget did. 
but uh, you know, if not today, we'll for sure uh, put one or two shows into the mix in the next week or so, uh, discussing uh, my interview with Doug Paget and taking apart some of the things that he said, and uh, seeing you know how that really compares with scriptures, and uh, whether or not you know whether or not the emergent church is is really uh, giving us a Christianity that's worth believing. And again, how am I defining that? The true Christianity, you know, the one that's biblical. Uh, or uh, is, is this an alternative gospel? Is this an alternative Christianity that um, is really not not a valid alternative? We're, we'll have to discuss that. And then in today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the opening thoughts of the Reveal Conference. Um, we're going to also uh, take a long listen to the final plenary from that conference it, it was uh, the the guy who gave the final plenary was a guy by the name of John Ortberg, and uh, he asked the question: Are you making better Christians or more disciples? Yeah, are you making better Christians or more disciples? One of the things I did while I was at the Reveal Conference is I was live blogging while I was listening to people. Now, some some of the uh, some of the sessions were far more easier to live blog because they had good outlines and there was the stuff to do it. And you'll notice that it seems like my notes are incomplete. Well, the reason why they are is because some of the later sessions in the conference really weren't providing that type of inter- information. What they were doing was interviewing different pastors who apparently were doing it right. At the Reveal Conference, you know, they 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 have all of this data now. They've got this powerful survey that they claim uh, will tell you whether or not you're making uh, true Christ followers, and um, and and you know, and they'll tell you how many of each of four different types of people are in your church. You got your people who are exploring Christianity. You have your people who've just made a decision; they're beginning their Christian walk on this uh, continuum. And then you've got people who are really growing. But then you've got the final group: the the fully committed, Christ-centered person. And so they're, they've, they think that they've come up with a way to measure someone's love for God and someone's love for people. And, um, and as a result of that, they can tell you what type of people that you have. And then, and, and basically, if I were to boil all this down, what did it all mean? The Reveal Now survey is, is really, really tangled up in this buzz term that's been really coming out over the past few years called spiritual formation. And um, basically the entire Reveal Now conference was ultimately about spiritual formation. And as you'll see as we uh, delve into this and we listen to some of the things that were going on, uh, it's, it's ultimately clear, painfully clear, that there is a supreme disconnect in a, a supreme lack of understanding of law and gospel uh, when it comes to what was presented at the Reveal Now conference. There were parts of the conference that were very frustrating for me to, to sit through. There were things that were um, refreshing to hear, but with the devil being in the details, it was um, it was some of the things I felt that they were giving us, they took away, they ended up taking away. So um, what I'm going to recommend that you do uh, everyone who's listening to this program, either live or via podcast, um, I'm going to put uh, a link, and I might on the podcast I might even make it like a second hour, you know, basically say mandatory listening. Um, there's a back in July, in the early part of July, there was a, a, a program that I put up called Three Dimensional Theology, 
three-dimensional theology is the title. This has got this is like required listening now, because if you really want to get what's going on here, um, in 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 my critique of the of the Willow Creek Conference, basically it's a it's it's part of a broader critique I have of American evangelicalism, and I've done some work on this already. And the name of the name of the lecture that I gave on this was three-dimensional theology. I'll make that available in the podcast so that you guys can listen to it. Listen to it again. You're going to need to listen to that again because um, that's where I, I, I give a far more complete explanation as to what the troubles are with this way of thinking. So, um, you know, without any further ado, then I think what we'll need to do is we're, we're going to go into some of the audio from the Reveal Now conference and um, start taking this apart. Now, like I said, there were some good things and there were some bad things. The opening sessions were very interesting um, in the sense that um, um, there's some repudiation of what's been happening in the greater seeker-sensitive movement. it, it, It really becomes clear early on that Okay, they these guys realized that there, there there's some things that they assumed would work that are truly not working, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, play some audio from the opening uh, session from uh, Pastor Greg Hawkins of uh, Willow Creek as well as Bill Hybels. I don't know if I'm going to comment so much. I'll stop and comment as I as I feel I need to. But I think it's important that you, you kind of get a feel for what's going on. What was the mea culpa? What did they realize wasn't working? And uh, what was the solutions that they came up with? And then, of course, we'll talk about the devil being in the details. So without any further ado, what I'm going to do here is I just load up my, my magical uh, <laughs> audio machine here and, uh, and get us into uh, Greg Hawkins' opening plenary on the things that they learned from the survey and the things that they realized they were doing wrong. So uh, here's uh, Greg Hawkins. Start at the very beginning, okay? What, what is it that we do? Why do we do what we do in church work? And it's really quite simple, and I'm going to answer the question for you. And it's found in Matthew 28, and it's what Jesus gave us in 28, uh, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay? Our job is to make disciples. And so this is the way that I like to draw it. Okay? We're going to help people who are far from God. Okay, nice people. People make them happy at least. Okay, feel far from God, and we're going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to produce disciples of Jesus. Okay, let me stop right there. All right, we're both in agreement here that um, really, you know, one of the major functions that church performs, that the church does, is making disciples. Christ told the disciples to go and make disciples. Okay, um, the devil's in the details here as far as how they're going to define that, though. But um, so we're in agreement that you know the the job of the church is to go and make disciples. Now it's important for you to understand historically here that Bill Hybels, the the CEO of the Willow Creek Association, Bill Hybels, who is a disciple of Robert Schuler and his church growth methods, 
and his church and his school on church growth has bought into and helped pioneer an entire set of practices that he's taught to literally they Willow Creek Association despite the fact that they uh you know they're doing some mea culpas at this point we're very happy to have advertisements appear on their their big screens you know inviting you know people in attendance to join the Willow Creek Association claiming that, that they have trained over 1 million pastors worldwide in their methods okay and you have to understand the basic premises behind the seeker sensitive movement and how it works it basically goes in a nutshell you go out and you conduct surveys of the unchurched people in your community and you ask them what they like about church what they don't like about church and then what you do is you craft a service a church service designed to meet the felt needs of the people in your community based upon the survey results that you have received the other part of this is that Discipleship then isn't done by having expository Bible teaching and uh, by, you know, having Sunday school and and adult classes and things like that. Discipleship occurs via activities. What you do is you get people to come to church, you know, to your big hoopla, your big entertainment session, meet their felt needs in the church service. And as part of the uh, as, as the teaching services to meet felt needs. That's why you get these topical sermons about sex, why you get the topical sermons about finances, about having a better career, uh, you know, making your life better, all of that. The reason why they, those topics are chosen is because that's the information that came back from the surveys from the unchurched people. that They needed practical information that they could apply. You know, it's, you know, and so that's how you craft your services. Then discipleship occurs by getting them busy. You get people to, into small group activities. You get people involved in, in volunteering in the church. You get them involved in, in mercy missions. And so discipleship is supposed to occur via activity. Okay, that's the idea. That's the basic premises behind the model. Now, you're going to hear um, Greg Hawkins repudiating this model based upon the data that they received. So I want you, you know, this is it's going to take a few minutes to get there. But I want you to understand ahead of time that, you know, what's working behind the scenes in this. If you're not familiar with the seeker sensitive methodology, by the way, this is the same exact methodology that's promoted by the purpose driven movement in, in Rick Warren. And so it'd be interesting to see if uh, Rick Warren would uh, have Saddleback have a reveal survey done. <laughs> anyway, let's continue. Okay. It's as simple as that. Oh, there is a person, too. There you got a person. Okay. Big happy smile. This is what we're being asked to do. We, in some ways, are in the spiritual movement business, if you will. I hate to use that term, but that's what we've been asked to do, to help people move along this direction and produce disciples. And I don't think too many of you would argue with me about that point. But the question then gets asked, what is a disciple of Jesus? Okay, now, this is, this is where things are very critical. If you mess up this definition, what is a disciple? I'm going to tell you right now, you, you, you're going to lose the whole game. How you define a disciple is going to be the determining factor as to what, you know what you focus and emphasize in your preaching and your teaching. How you define this is critical. Now, just so you know, the Greek word for disciple is the Greek word mathetes. Okay? 
Let me read to you some of the definitions, the standard definitions of the word mathetes. It's one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil or an apprentice. So one of the prime, the, the fact, the primary definition of a disciple is a learner. Okay? I want to point this out. Words have meanings. You can't just pour your own thoughts and ideas into these words. You have to dig out because the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the authors of the Bible to use this Greek word, mathetes. What were the disciples? They were learners, and they were receiving their instruction from Jesus Christ. Okay. Second definition, one who is rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation or a particular set of views, a disciple or an adherent. Okay. So just from the Greek word itself, we get a picture of a disciple is a learner. Okay, In the sense of Jesus had his disciples, Jesus was the master, he was the teacher, and they were his learners. They were learning from him. Okay, Now, let's listen to how um, Greg Hawkins defines a disciple. And we'll talk about what the problems with that definition are here in a second. And a few of us do sort of spend a lot of time and write a bunch of books about what that's all about. But I like to go back to Matthew chapter 22 in verse 35. And it says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. For me, anyway, when I read that passage and other passages of Jesus' teaching, when he talks about a disciple, he is talking at the heart of the discipleship. It's about one word. What is that word? Love. It's all about love. Love of God and love of people. Now, i got to stop. Okay? He is defining a disciple as somebody who obeys the law. Somebody who loves God and loves people, or a growing love for God and a growing love for people. Now, we've got to be really, really careful here because I'm going to say this and you got to understand it. True Christians, somebody who trusts in Christ, whose life is marked by repentance and the forgiveness of sins, is somebody who because they've been given faith, have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that is marked in their life as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, as they set their eyes on Christ and the cross, is love for God and love for neighbor. It's imperfect, but it's the obedience that flows from faith in Christ. It can't be done without him. Okay? Now, the problem I have with this definition that he's given here is that Christ becomes example or teacher to teach you how to love God and love others. It's Jesus is kind of a new Moses. And that's the problem here. The emphasis is on the law, not repentance and belief or repentance and the forgiveness of sins. 
faith doesn't play a factor in the things, the way they're talking, in the way they're thinking. The emphasis is on law-keeping. And the reason I say that is because the law is summarized by one word, love. But humanity's problem is that we don't love. And so as you listen to these guys, as I listen to these guys for two full days, the one thing that became painfully clear is that, that they completely miss, completely were blind to the idea that faith is the thing. Instead, they were always focusing on what can I do to be obedient? And they had skipped over Christ and faith. And so basically, this is a chasing after your tail. Defining a disciple in this way, I think, biblically, misses the point. And as a result of it, right from the beginning, we're dealing with the wrong set of definitions. And we're going to get results that are not in keeping with the gospel and not in keeping with Christ. Christ doesn't have much to do with this form of Christianity except to forgive you of your sins, give you a clean start, and then get you to work. And boy, was that clear. Let's continue with Greg Hawkins. And so when you look at a disciple, it's something that you see inside of them. It's in their heart that you see it. And so when this is the activity that God's asked us to be a, join him in, and if success, if you will, is, is, is something that goes on in the heart of people, how in the world do we measure that? How in the world do we know if we're being successful in this very important mission that we've been given by Christ? I mean, it, it would be nice if we could install machines at all of our entrances to our sanctuaries, right, and scan people. So when they come in, we scan their hearts, and we can see the condition of their heart. And then when we've done and we, we, they've met with God, they can leave and we can scan them again and we can at least get some feedback on what's working and not working. Right? But that's a ridiculous idea, so we don't do anything close to that. So what we do instead, because we're so committed to this, we're very serious about this, is what we do in our churches is, is what we know to do. We create services. We teach classes. We get folks involved in small groups. We extend care. We help people serve and volunteer. And you name it, we do it in our churches. And then our strategy is pretty straightforward. We take folks and get them involved, get them participating. It's participating, okay? In these sets of activities, believing it will produce more disciples of Jesus. Okay, that get them busy, believing that will produce more disciples of Jesus. Okay? He's pretty much admitted, okay, that they're basic, the basic assumptions here. He's, he's laying out the basic assumptions of the seeker-sensitive movement as far as how it makes disciples. It's discipleship based upon activity. Another very famous proponent of this way of doing things is Erwin McManus, okay? This, this is a guy who, who basically he says, you know, we don't disciple people by teaching, and we disciple people by getting them to work, which is a complete confusion and misunderstanding of what the word disciple means. A disciple is a learner. Okay. So, anyway, let's continue with uh, Hawkins here. People characterized by an increasing love for God and love for other people. Okay? And, and why do we do that? You know what's missing? Repentance and, and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and faith. There is no call to faith here. There is no repentance. It, you, they don't, they're not using the law here 
to convict you of your sin and show you on a daily basis, even you Christians, that you don't measure up to God's standard and you need Christ's forgiveness. You, you have no hope outside of Christ and what he has done for you. That's not what's going on here. It's the Jesus died for your sins. You got a clean start. Now get busy and get to work. And we do that because that's been our life experience. We've been touched by services. We've been touched by classes and group lives and serving people and and receiving care. We know that this has produced this in our life. And so what we say is, look, this is pretty simple. We drive, we, we get people, we create these things to meet a need, get them involved and let this happen. And then at the end of a ministry season or end of a calendar year or whatever, we ask ourselves the question, how are we doing? Because we so care for this mission. We want to know, how are we doing? And so we ask a very simple question. How many? Right? How many? How many are are in our services, are in small groups, volunteering and all those sorts of things? Got to stop there. Now, this is this is a good candid confession at this point. He's basically saying that the way we've been measuring success is based purely upon numbers. It's based upon numbers. But is that the right measure? And then we get some feedback, at least on how well we're doing in producing disciples of Christ. And that is the model for how we've done ministry. Now, as executive pastor in this church for the past 13 years, I've been involved in all of those years in making decisions about how we allocate resources and produce these sets of activities that people can be involved in. And we do this in community. We do this after much thought and much prayer. But that's the fundamental question. But in the back of my mind, I'm always, I've always wondered, I've always wondered, is this, does this really work? Or, or more likely what I'm asking is, how do I tweak this? Do I need more of this, less of this? What do I do in this portfolio to create somebody whose heart's bigger for God and for other people? And that's been a very um, haunting question to me. But back in the fall of 2003, I had a meeting with Callie Parkinson who was our communications director here at the church at the time, and she introduced me to a consultant that she had worked with when she was in the marketplace working for Allstate Insurance. The consultant's name was Eric Arnson. And his work with his colleagues in the marketplace was doing some very groundbreaking kind of research to help companies understand what was going on inside the hearts of their customers. Why did some people buy more things than others? Why were some people more loyal to a product than others? They found ways to get sort of inside of people. And when we had a conversation with Eric, and Callie made the introduction, he thought, you know what, I think we can apply these same techniques to look what's going on inside of someone who attends your church. What are the things that are helping grow their heart for God? What are their, what's going on inside of them? And I just have to tell you, I was a little bit skeptical to go like, Okay, you know, maybe. But you know what? He decided he was willing to help us for free. So I'm like, okay, fine. Let's, let's go do this. I mean, I mean, and seriously, you know, and I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I've worked with good-hearted people who want to help the church. They have their little program. And you know what? It's like, you don't really want to serve me. You just, you want to sell me something or something. And there was no spirit of this in, in Eric. So we began a research effort here in the fall of 03 into 04, we interviewed people, we studied spiritual formation and how that worked, and we, we wrote a survey that we fielded, in, 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 fielded is the fancy term, but we asked it of everybody in our church, and got thousands and thousands of people to respond. And then we gave that data to Eric and a team of volunteers, and we were waiting for him to come back and tell us, like, yes, your services are fantastic, and do more small groups, or, you know, how do we change this portfolio of offerings to make this happen? 
So we waited. We waited a few weeks. We waited a few extra weeks. And I'm going, okay, how hard can this be? I mean, and, uh, and he comes back and he goes, well, the reason it's hard is because this doesn't work. I'm like, okay, what do you mean it doesn't work? He goes, well, this is how you think about life. You think about your congregation through the lens of activity. These people are minimally involved. They are called casual attenders, right? These people are regular attenders. These people are regular attenders, and they serve on a frequent basis. And these people are in a small group and serve and come all the time. And these people do whatever in the heck I tell them to do all the time. So, right? And you see your congregation through this lens of activity, believing that the people down here who are doing everything look more like Jesus, and the people down here who are barely doing anything look more like someone far from God. Got to stop there for a second. He just admitted, and this is where it gets really weird for me, he just admitted that the people who are most active aren't necessarily the ones who are close to God. Activity doesn't necessarily equal maturity in Christ. That's how you see the world, and guess what? It doesn't, it's not, it's not right. Because through the research, we found people who were minimally involved in your activities who had this huge heart for God and a huge heart for other people. And we found people, by the way, who were very involved in activities who had a small heart for God and a small heart for people. Now, at the same time, we found people who were really involved with a big heart and people who were not involved with a small heart. It, activity doesn't predict whether or not someone has a heart for God or a heart for other people. So you're deceiving yourself to think that when you look at someone's activity level, it's helping you know whether or not you're producing a disciple. And I'm like, it's great. That's great. That's great. I will go write my resume now, you know? <laughs> I said, so, so then, we, I mean, you're just going to leave me like that? What are you going to do about that? He goes, well, we're working on it. We're, we're trying to find another way to see this, another way to look at a congregation. And I'm going, okay. They looked at 17 different ways of looking at a congregation to see if anything helped them understand how someone grew. And guess what? One day they walked in and they go, we found it. Not only have we found it, we have found one of the strongest segmentations or groupings of, of, a, of a group of people that we've ever done in our 20 years of doing this kind of research. It's the most powerful, clear-cut thing we've ever done. And I'm going, oh, okay, okay, what is that? What they had discovered, and I'm, okay, this is not rocket science. Now, just bear with me. I know it's not. Is It's not about activity. It's about intimacy. You need to understand how important Jesus is to people's lives. You need to understand what role he plays in their lives. So you need to look at a congregation through the lens of intimacy. And okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. <laughs> Interesting story. We're going to, I'm going to have to comment on this on the other side of the break. So if you would like to uh, chime in, this is a very interesting set of information that I'm sharing with you. If you would like to uh, chime in, you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We've got more coming up on the other side of the break. going to listen to Bill Hybels and then uh, talk about spiritual formation and this difference between the terminology a Christian versus a Christ follower. Willow Creek was all over that one. And boy, was I scared by what I heard. We'll be right back. If you
you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the First Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Roseborough, and we are in the middle of listening to information shared at Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. The ground zero for the Willow Creek Association, millions of pastors worldwide being trained by them in the seeker-sensitive movement, and them doing a survey, a qualitative survey, to see if their methods and their assumptions turned out to be true. Now, no one likes anybody who says, I told you so. That, that, that's always a very bitter-sounding thing. But I'll tell you one of the things that's frustrating for me listening to this is that as somebody who has been an outspoken critic of the seeker-sensitive movement and the purpose-driven movement for many years, even before Reveal Now uh, hit the scenes, I was, I was attacking it biblically, saying this, these assumptions are wrong, they're not biblical, they're, they're not going to work. And basically... I was just poo-pooed as the uh, negative jealousy. That, that's, that's the other thing. I, I'm an angry, jealous, uh, bitter, sinful white guy um, who just has nothing. Uh, and, and an evil blogger. That's the other thing I am. You know, and, and it's like, come on, guys. Okay. So their data is, is yeah, they, they won't listen to the, uh, they won't listen to the Bible or anybody who critiques them on a blog. But, you know, they, they went and conducted a survey. And what did the survey show? Um, what the blogger said was right, was right. <sighs> but no one likes anybody who says, I told you so. <laughs> I didn't say that in so many words. Anyway, so we just got done listening to Greg Hawkins, one of the pastors at Willow Creek. He's been there for 13 years. He's the executive pastor, works very closely with, uh, with Bill Hybels. And he basically said that the data that they, they, were able to glean the survey that they con conducted showed that their model, this idea that activity is how you decide, you know, discipleship, someone's love for God, turned out to be completely not true. 
activity doesn't determine someone's love for God. In fact, they the the guy who conducted the original survey basically said, "Listen, you have people who have very little activity in the church, and their love for God is huge. And then you got a lot of people who are very busy for God, and their love for God is small. Interesting that they say that they can measure these things." But, uh, you know, let's just assume that maybe they've, they've got something, you know, they've got a way to measure these things. All right? That's a very interesting thing. So activity doesn't produce disciples. So um, I won't play it for you, but let me tell you the five most important things that uh, Greg Hawkins at the, at the Reveal Now conference said were the uh, strongest or most empower, you know, most powerful catalysts for creating spiritual growth in people, the number one thing, the number one thing is reading and reflecting on the Bible. Get that. The more you read and reflect on the Bible, the greater your love for God and for others grows. According to their data, that is the number one thing. Now, this created problems, okay? The other ones are develop core Christian belief, developing uh, core Christian beliefs is crucial for those in the early stages of spiritual growth. Hawkins made the case that you've got to teach young Christians core fundamental Christian doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of salvation by grace. He says you've got to teach these two young Christians. You've got to get them in. In fact, he says you even you've got to get even unbelievers, those who are exploring, you've got to get them engaged with the scriptures early on. And so basically their data showed that, you know, all the things <laughs> that the Christian church had been doing for millennia is, you know, teaching the Bible, teaching core Christian doctrines to people early on are important. Um, personal spiritual practices. <clears throat> this is a hot button, guys. You know, these I'm going to tell you this right now. Willow Creek right now is uh, really dabbling in new monasticism. The spiritual formation and spiritual practices of Dallas Willard and other people like that, and it's very problematic. Um, so they also said serving as a catalytic experience in spiritual community is vital, and it and uh, those are the you know, those are the top five. But the top two are reading and reflecting on the Bible and developing core Christian beliefs and doctrines in the early stages of spiritual growth. They say that's critical. And what have I been saying for years? These sermons that are being preached at these seeker-sensitive churches that barely give a gnat's navel's you know, amount of Bible verses ripped from context are incapable and impotent at growing Christians and feeding God's sheep. This is what their data showed, too. Interesting. So the next part of this, which I thought is interesting, is, is that um, at the Reveal, uh, the, at the reveal uh, conference... Um, Bill Hybels himself commented on this and um, went a little farther in his kind of mea culpa in, in describing the uh, the way he felt in, in, in trying to set people up here because he's been telling people for years to follow the seeker-sensitive methods and when they got the results back from the survey, it showed that it wasn't working. So it wasn't working. So uh, we're going to play a little bit of Bill Hybels now. And I want you to listen carefully to uh, what it is that uh, that uh, he's saying, you know, he went through 
Um, and what he said, gotta, you got to hear it. So here, here's uh, Bill Hybels. You know, uh, you self-selected uh, to be exposed to information that is going to create an enormous amount of disequilibrium in your brain the next few days. Uh, when Greg and Jimmy first started asking, you know, ab about a reveal conference and talking about it, I said, I don't think people are going to fly on airplanes and pay to get their heads screwed with. I, I, don't, I think most people go to conferences to get their current way of doing ministry reinforced. Got to stop there for a second. Listen to what he's saying. Most people fly to conferences to have their current way of doing ministry reinforced. Willow Creek has been having conferences for decades. And up until the Reveal Now results, they've been reinforcing the ministry methods that they helped pioneer, the seeker-sensitive approach to doing church. You choose conferences so that it'll pump you up about what you're already doing. And when you come to something that by the very nature of it is going to challenge the actual fundamentals of what you do every day. Well, you're brave souls. And I predict that this conference is going to hurt you in some ways. And uh, I know why many of you senior pastors came alone this time. <laughs> you don't want your staff or elders exposed to this stuff. Because you want to process it first. I get that. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders, and the context of that is church leaders. Obey your church leaders, submit to their authority, because they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account before God. Church leaders will give an account before God someday for how they led their churches. I stumbled on this in the early days of Willow. It's haunted me every year for over three decades. This verse says to you and to me that we are not free to build a church to my own level of satisfaction or to the satisfaction level of my elders or bishops. The measuring rod, which we will stand against when we stand before Christ with regard to building our church anyway, is did we build it to God's satisfaction? Did we build it His way, to, for His glory, in His power, and uh, such that it'll bring a smile to Him? Now, this is a huge point that we need to get well established. I meet pastors all the time who get their church to a certain size, a certain scale, a certain comfort level of ministry effectiveness, and then somewhere deep inside they go, that's just good enough now. It's close enough. The seats are full enough. The offerings are big enough. The people are happy enough. I am not going to upset an apple cart now. And so for the next 5, 10, 15 years... They make little tiny dial changes. They freshen up the bulletins. They brighten up the paint scheme of the lobby. They young down the website. They get funky glasses and preach with their shirts hanging out. <laughs> but as far as ever seriously considering 
changing their fundamental approach to ministry at some point along the way. That isn't on the table anymore. That all got settled a decade ago, never to be questioned again. I'm not pointing fingers here. I'm telling you, I've done this. I've pioneered some ministry strategies over the years in a certain department, for example, put them in place, and then just looked away for a decade. And even though I realized at some point along the way that that department and that strategy was no longer hitting on all eight cylinders, well, I had other things going on. It was just good enough. Good. Enough. It's not that he just pioneered them. He taught other churches to follow those same methods. Keep that in mind. According to Willow Creek's own numbers, they've trained over a million pastors and church leaders. Enough. And I would choose peacekeeping over apple cart overturning. And I'm not proud of that. I've never been proud of my leadership when I've led that way. It bothers me. And it, it just takes me back to Hebrews 13, 17, which says, I'll give an account before God someday for things that were broken at Willow that I left alone because I chose the peace over mixing it up with people and saying, there must be a way that we can do better. The reveal era in this church uh, is an era I'm very proud of. I'm proud of it despite the public hits we've taken over it. I'm proud of it despite all the misunderstandings that exist in the kingdom about it. I'm really proud of the reveal era here at Willow because it has forced us to roll up our sleeves and to challenge things that went unchallenged around here for a long, long time. And I want to point something out. Pastor Hybels, People have been challenging these methods for years. And it wasn't until you did a survey that you began to realize that maybe something wasn't right. And it forced us to ask the fundamental question, are we concerned about optimizing the staff and the resources to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ? Do we want to pay whatever price we have to pay? Do we want to face whatever we have to face to get that job done in a way that will please God? When we first took the reveal survey, I expected that the results would be benign. I actually looked forward to Greg and his team coming to our little office in South Haven where I was on vacation and filling me in on how great we were doing with everything. And they... As I've said before publicly, you know, they wrecked my day. Because, now, there were some things that were stellar. Some of our strategies were working terrifically. I mean, we had a solid percentage of explorers in our church. There's a lot of churches say they are trying to lead people to Christ. There hasn't been a non-Christian around their church in years. A lot of people just patting themselves on the back for, you know, how things are going at the church. Just nobody's getting saved there. Well, we got our revealed data back, and we have a sizable number of people 
hanging around our church on the edge of being reconciled to God. We felt good about that. A lot of our Creekers were engaged in relationship with people far from God. So they had an evangelistic orientation going on in their life. And we had a solid percentage of truly Christ-centered people in this church. And when I saw the percentage, I felt really, really good about that. And so there were a lot of findings in that survey that I felt really good about. And then there were some findings in the survey that really bothered me at a level so deeply that, you know, I wanted to strangle the messengers. It it was hard for me to, to admit that I'd poured 30 years of my life into this thing that... And, and it had parts, that, that parts of what the findings were showed me that we had fallen short of helping our people in some ways. When I learned that 18% of our congregation had stalled out in their spiritual development and they didn't know what to do. Well, that's not 18 people at Willow. That's 18% of a really big number. That's like... More than a thousand people at our church are stalled out. They don't know what to do. I was like, oh my gosh, I stand up in front of these people every weekend and they're frustrated and feel disconnected from God and I'm not helping them and the church isn't helping them and uh, there's no prescription that we can give them. That, That haunted me night after night as I contemplated that. And then when I learned that some of our most mature and most fired up Christians felt like our church was not helping them go the next level. They wanted to even be more fired up. They wanted their roots to go down deeper. They wanted to be challenged more from the Word of God. And a percentage of them were saying, well, it's not helping me. I'm on my own with regard to that. Well, if it weren't for Greg's discipline, you know that he's a... Stanford MBA, and he's done a lot of research before he came to be my executive pastor. He was in the business world with a consulting firm. He understands how to look at things, and he just kept saying, Bill, calm down. You know, facts are your friends. Facts are your friends. I'm like, you're not my friend right now. But, you know, facts are your friends. And over time, man, we really, we really believe that facts are friends. All right, I'm going to pause there for a second. So right off the bat, one of the things that really struck me is, you know, you can hear it in the tone of his voice, and you, you could, when if you were there, you'd see it in his posture, is that he wasn't, you know, big man on campus with a big chip on his shoulder right now. He's very humble and contrite and even chastised by the data that came back. To the point where he sounds like he's really, really hurt by the fact that the things that he's helped pioneer wasn't doing the job that he expected. That the assumptions that he had, that the methods that he had bought into and the methods that he'd helped create were not doing their job. In fact, quite the opposite. It wasn't that they weren't doing their job. It's that they were literally leaving people stranded in their, quote, spiritual growth. 
I'm glad that he was chastised. I'm glad that he was humbled. I'm glad that their their survey uh, showed that what they need to be doing is finding a way to get people engaged with the Word of God. I'd be the first to tell you that God's Word is a means of grace. That it's through God's Word that our minds are renewed, our souls are fed. That God transforms us and sanctifies us through the washing of His Word. I'm glad that that is what Willow's data showed. And that was one of the primary things that they were teaching at this conference. On the, la- on the first day, the last plenary session, it was more of an interview. It was really difficult to sit through. Really, really difficult to sit through. And the reason why it was so hard is because the purpose of the last hour of the, la- of the first day was to have them try to sell and I, I, I got to put this in the strongest words possible. Greg Hawkins was trying to sell the pastors at that conference that what they need to be doing is expository Bible teaching. It was mind-boggling. How far has the church in America gone? How far have they gotten off the rails when a major church who's pioneered all these church growth methods and ways of doing church has to sell the people in attendance on the importance of expository Bible teaching. And Greg Hawkins, as soon as the words came out of his mouth that, you know, that our, our data shows that what people need are is expository Bible teaching there was a collective gasp, and he immediately went, I know, I know that this, is, that this is a controversial subject. When did expository Bible teaching become a controversial subject in the Christian church? Answer, when the church growth movement attacked it and said we didn't need it. I am saying these things because I understand that Bill Hybels is chastised. I understand that he's humble. I understand that he's sorry. I get the fact that they realize that they've made some huge mistakes and that they're trying to correct them. I understand that he's repudiating some of the methods that they've developed. I understand that he's at this point done a complete 180 and repented and trying to teach people the right thing. I get that. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that it was men like Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, Robert Schuler, who attacked expository Bible teaching. Not just said, no, maybe we don't need it. No, they outright wrote books and resources and created arguments against expository Bible teaching. They modeled how not to do expository Bible teaching. They have been the people out there who've taught millions of church workers to not engage in expository Bible teaching. 
That's what's going on here. And then to have him turn them turn around and say, we were wrong. We were wrong. This is not just an oopsie we're talking about here. This is not like spilling milk. We're talking about men who have so much power that they, what they say and what they do will be followed and emulated by people all over the world. There are pastors who look to these men as their examples. And they have they do their church churches the way Willow Creek does its church because they learn to do church from Bill Hybels and from Willow Creek. I understand and I can hear it in his voice, his sorrow over what happened. But the reason why the church is so far off the rails, it sits in his lap, it sits in Rick Warren's lap, and it sits in Robert Schuler's lap. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we get back, we're going to be listening to John Ortberg define the definition or the differences between a Christian and a Christ follower. Yeah, they're finally figuring out that church isn't about you. Right, that's what they're saying, too. I'm glad to hear that. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> we'll be right back. We're, if you'd like to email me, uh, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. I, I couldn't do that. 
<clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, uh, uh, vision. Okay, and okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now. How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Alright, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith doing kind of a summary of the things uh, I heard, witnessed at the Reveal Conference there in the suburbs of Chicago at Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. This next segment, I'm going to go a little bit long on it. Something to keep in mind here, and going back through my notes I was live blogging while I was at uh, Willow Creek, and one one of the things I made a note about was uh, some interesting language that I heard, and um, let me see if I can find my note here. It was Christ follower. Uh, here's my note. It's from my blog, extremetheology.com. It says, why have these folks dumped the word Christian in favor of Christ follower. Now, this was day one of the uh, of the conference, and one of the things I thought was really interesting was this pervasive use of the term Christ follower. And the way they were using it was in some kind of contradistinction to the term Christian. And uh, this is important, okay? I'll, I'll reemphasize this. Folks, if you haven't heard my lecture on three-dimensional theology, you need to listen to it. In fact, I'm making it available for you to listen to. I'll put links. uh, It'll come out as part of the uh, homework assignment download, you know, from tonight's podcast. But um, it was very troubling. In my notes, I said something has rattled loose in their doctrine and theology. And based on how they're using the term Christ follower, it doesn't appear that it is a synonym for the word Christian. They're trying to distinguish themselves from Christians. And uh, one of the people commented on my blog and said, oh, no, the two are synonymous. There's not a, there's not a wink's worth of difference between the two. And said, no, 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 no. So, something severely different here. And this kind of gets back to what I, what I think is the, the primary problem with this conference is that it's promoting a Christianity based upon the law, not a Christianity based upon faith in Christ. It's not about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's about law-keeping and getting with the latest program. And Christ follower implies something that I do. Something I have to be doing. Whereas Christian implies something different. Something completely different. And the the pastors that were there were um, 
were definitely using this term Christ follower. And what I thought was also interesting, there's no cross at Willow Creek. I mean, I searched high and low, could not find a cross on their campus. This is a Christless, crossless Christianity. And I know that's a Horton's term, but it's so true. What's funny is, is that I did end up finding a cross. It was in the bookstore, and it was on Doug Paget's book. Yeah, at the Willow Creek Bookstore, oh, man, they are selling a lot of some some scary books. They have a big emergent section, a full thing dedicated to Rob Bell, a whole thing on spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines, uh, Henry Nowen, <laughs> a heretic. They've got lots of book by books by Henry Nowen. They've got books on neo-monasticism, uh, spiritual disciplines by Dallas Willard. It's I took photographs with my iPhone, and maybe I'll put them up on my blog later, but whoa. But I did find a cross, and it was on Doug Paget's book, uh, A Christianity Worth Believing. H- how scary is that? Mormons don't have crosses either. Yeah, Mormons don't have crosses either. That's a good point, John. Anyway, so um, it was already – by day one of the conference, I was definitely detecting – you know, legalism, law-based, law-keeping, performance-based Christianity based on this material principle of uh, of the fact that uh, the, the center of Christianity is about your changed life, okay? And um, and the final plenary was uh, delivered by a guy by the name of John Ortberg. John Ortberg. And the name of his plenary was, Are You Making Better Christians or More Disciples? I knew there was a problem here. Um, oh, man, this is bad stuff. And we're going to listen to Ortberg, and we're going to take this apart because this is the problem with this, with the Christianity. If you, I, I don't even know if I should call it that anymore. The Christianity being promoted by Willow Creek. And so we're going to listen to uh, John Ortberg here. Here we Just go. huge highlights of being here is getting to spend uh, a little time. I wish it was more with Jimmy and uh, the gift of friendship. There is nothing like it, and it overcomes every barrier. I was thinking, y'all know there's a debate on tonight, an election going on, and um, Jimmy and I don't always see eye to eye politically. He's a deeply committed socialist, um, <laughs> but that's never really gotten in the way of our love for each other. And. Um, uh, oh, hey, one other announcement before I go any further. I was told, you guys all had like clickers earlier, and, and we're supposed to turn those in. We are 29 clickers short. And I just want to say, anybody who would come to a conference on spiritual formation and rip off a clicker is just <laughs> got some issues. So let the Spirit work on you. I want to say something here. He's confessing that this conference really is about spiritual formation, and that's the thing they don't tell you. It's really not in the in the in the uh, materials that this is really about spiritual formation. But what they've done is they've taken the reveal now results, the survey results, and they've basically turned this into spiritual formation. Spiritual formation has its roots in Roman Catholicism, by the way. I have to probably do a show on the history of that. But anyway, just wanted to let you know this is all about what you got to do. Over these next moments, get those clickers in. Okay. Um, any of you see the Olympics this summer? Michael Phelps is amazing, isn't he? Eight gold medals. Tell you how popular he is. Uh, guy who works with Facebook was telling me that Facebook reckoned they added five million users over the Olympics because Michael Phelps said that he goes on Facebook. 
Now, question. How many of you would say, um, be willing to say, I admire Michael Phelps? Who would be willing to say, I admire Michael Phelps? Me too. Here's the deal. Somewhere out there this summer, there was a kid watching Michael Phelps, and what happened to him went way beyond admiration. Somewhere out there, and there really was this kid, and none of us knows who it is yet. One day we will. But somewhere out there, there was a kid, when he watched Michael Phelps, his heart started pounding, and his mind started racing. And he said to himself, what Michael Phelps did, I could do. The way he swam, I could swim. Where he's standing on that podium one day, I could stand. And right now, while you and I sit here, that kid is going to the pool every day. He is reading articles. He is watching videos. He is looking for a coach. He actually wants to become like Michael Phelps. He actually wants to do what Michael Phelps has done. He is not just an admirer of Michael Phelps. He's a follower. Now, I will applaud what Michael Phelps did, but it's not going to change my life. I have not been in a pool since the Olympics. I'm an admirer. I'm not a follower. There's a big difference. An admirer is impressed. A follower is devoted. An admirer applauds. A follower surrenders. An admirer approves. A follower obeys. Got to stop right there. This is exactly the kind of Christianity uh, or preaching that nearly turned me into an atheist. You're setting up strata within Christianity. In the Nazarene church, they would talk about those who had the second blessing. Okay? They were more holy and sanctified because they received this special blessing from God. And they were, they were more obedient than anybody else. Now we, we've got John Ortberg at Willow Creek telling all of these pastors that there's a difference. He's going to be basically making a distinction between a Christian and a Christ follower. And it comes down to obedience. Now today, uh, I, you know, because I attended the conference, I received an email with a link asking me to give feedback on the conference. And one of the questions was, uh, if you can ask any of the, uh, the speakers a question, what would it be and who would you ask it of? And so I said, well, my question would be to John Ortberg. And my question would be, if you are really a Christ follower, then why do you still sin every day? I know that sounds unloving and it sounds harsh, but the reason I asked the question is because I want John Ortberg to know that this distinction that he set up is not a real distinction. He's making a case for people being Christ followers, and he's just said that what the difference between a follower and, and an admirer is obedience. If that's really the case, then even John Ortberg really isn't a Christ follower because he doesn't keep the law perfectly. Because if he truly loved Christ and was truly a Christ follower and he truly was obedient, then he would be perfectly obedient. Because that's what the law demands. This kind of thinking will send you down the road where you will try harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and feel like you're getting nowhere quicker and quicker. 
because the law demands perfect obedience. And the law is not designed to save you. The law, is its purpose is to show you your sinfulness and cause you to despair of your own righteousness and instead trust in the righteousness of Christ. Let's continue with John Ortberg. A lot of people admired Martin Luther King. Some marched with him. Not many went to jail with him. Not many had their houses bombed as he did. A lot of people admired Mother Teresa. Not many followed her to live among the destitute and the dying. This is why we're here. This is why you have traveled to talk about what's been talked about these last two days. Um, when you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew talks about two groups of people. And there's a dynamic that kind of runs throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus begins to teach, and we're told, when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. Two groups. One is the crowd. And there's lots of them. And they're very impressed by Jesus. In fact, when he gets to the end of his message... We're told when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The whole crowd admired Jesus. But while he was teaching, something happened in the hearts of a few of them that went way beyond admiration. For a few people, for a few, while Jesus was talking, their hearts started pounding and their minds started racing and something deep inside them said, this is it, this is what I have been longing for my whole life, to be cleansed and forgiven of all my sin and mess, to know God, to have courage, to have a life beyond the constant worry and fear and anxiety, to not be a slave anymore to sexual desire or money or people's approval or success, to be a part of God's work in my own little way to redeem the world, to have confidence beyond death. I must have this. I would rather have what this man has and give up everything else in the world than have everything else in the world and give up this man. Now, I want to point something out. He's isogeting this text. He's not exegeting it. He's isogeting it. He just read all of that into the text. That's important. Okay? It's important. Even though it sounds like he's making a rational appeal and he's teaching you what the Bible teaches, um, he just went on and tried to explain to you what people were feeling when they, uh, when they heard Jesus speaking. Well, first of all, it's not about feelings. And secondly, the Bible doesn't tell us what people's feelings were, or at least not many of them. He just read that into the text. Therefore, I will pay any price. I will do whatever he wants me to do. I will go wherever he tells me to go. I will be whatever he says I should be. I am leaving the crowd. I am not just an admirer. From this day on, I will live my life is a fully devoted follower of this man. Okay, he's just def defining somebody who is a follower of Christ based upon some commitment that they've made, a decision that they've made. Yeah, warm fuzzies. Where's faith? Where's repentance? Where's trust in Christ? Remember, 
what feeble obedience we do have in Christ as a result of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us, that is produced by the Holy Spirit because we have faith. It's not naked obedience. It's an obedience that is a fruit of the faith that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. There's no faith here so far. There's no repentance, there's no grieving. It's, this is psychobabble so far. And they'd go home that night and they couldn't sleep. It doesn't say that in the text, by the way. And they'd wake up the next morning and they'd be captivated by the same thing. doesn't say that in the text. He's reading that into it. The whole crowd admired Jesus, but every once in a while, somebody in the crowd wakes up and, and crosses a line and says, I will follow. Everybody who followed Christ truly followed him. Okay? Okay. Oh, don't get technical on me, John. John just pointed out a very important fact. Uh, the disciples who followed Jesus, he, there wasn't much convincing going on. It was, hey, come follow me. And he left his nets and went and followed Jesus. You know, one guy was sitting under a tree and, and he, he just left and followed Jesus. Christ chose his disciples, gave them faith, and that faith plays out in them following Christ. Now, of course, Jesus knew this would happen. And one of the things that Jesus is constantly doing is challenging people to move from admirer to follower. No, from unbelief to faith. That's the biblical category. From no faith to faith. From unbelief to belief. From war with God to trust in Christ. Those are the biblical categories. And generally, that move involves some kind of action, some price to pay, something quite concrete. Actually, salvation is a free gift. John 3, you all know this story. A Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. No one can do these miraculous things if you are not with him. John tells us he came by night, most likely because he did not want anybody to see him. And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must become my follower. You must publicly identify with me. Stop. 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 The term publicly identify with me is not in the passage. Okay? John 3. Okay. Let me... Jesus' answer. Okay. All right, it says, uh, all right, well, here we go. Let's read this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do this, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, uh, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, Jesus answered, Well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I want to point something out here. It doesn't say anything about publicly identifying with Christ. It says being born again. Now, here's a simple question. Did you choose to be born the first time? You didn't? You had you weren't able to have a discussion with your parents prior to them, you know, um, and say, you know, I really would like to be born now. Could you guys stop using the pill? I'd really like to be born now. Did you have any say in the matter whatsoever? None. A Christian who is born again is not born of the flesh. They're born of God. God is the one who decides. Just like you didn't have any decision to make in being born the first time, you have no decision to being born the second time. It's an act of God through His Spirit. Keep that in mind. So already John here, I mean, if you just do a little biblical work, you're seeing that there's problems. He's sticking stuff into the text. He's inserting it in. He's eisegeting. And he's telling you that God, God teaches something or the Bible teaches something that it doesn't teach. He's imposing his thoughts into God's word. As a result of it, what's coming out of his mouth is very dangerous. And what's it based upon? It's based upon the law. You make a decision. You decide that you're going to go from being an admirer to being a follower. You, you do, do, you, you, you. Christianity teaches Christ, 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 Christ. And eventually Nicodemus does. When Jesus dies, Nicodemus publicly claims his body, places it in a tomb, becomes his follower. Sometimes people don't. Rich young ruler comes up, and uh, the text says, he fell on his knees before Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's an admirer. He falls to his knees. He calls him good. And Jesus said, no one is good except for God, which is the point. The point of the story of the rich young ruler is that the rich young ruler believes that he's keeping God's law, and he's not. He believes he's righteous, and he isn't. He doesn't think he needs a savior. And so Jesus cranks up the law in order to show him his sinfulness. Because Christ came to seek and save the lost. This kid thinks he's found, that he isn't lost, that he's doing okay. Jesus says, go sell everything, give the money away and follow me. And that's the deal breaker. Why? Because the kid thought he was righteous. Read the text. The rich young ruler was ready to admire him. But following, where it would interfere with his life, his financial life or security or something, that's where he drew the line. There is in the New Testament a kind of a natural progression as people are coming to know Jesus. They begin as strangers to Him. And then from strangers, they become admirers. And then from admirers, they may become followers. i got to shoot this down. Oh, man, this is OK. He's he's basically taking his concepts and eisegeting again. OK, um, read the book of Acts. 
okay? And you will find that that God was the one who was adding to the number of disciples daily. And it wasn't this... Um, <laughs> let me read this. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, the Lord, our our God, calls to himself. Did you hear that? The Lord, our God, calls to himself. God calls us to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God is the one who does the adding. God is the one who does the adding. It was that that's Acts two thirty seven through forty one. Okay, there, people are repenting and receiving forgiveness and being baptized all in the same day, and yet He's imposing this idea, this distinction that isn't really there. And, of course, at each one of those points, people may decide that they're not going to go any further. Pilate does not become an admirer. Herod does not become an admirer. Rich young ruler does not become a follower. But I think what has happened in churches, especially in America in our day, is that we have added an additional category, and that category is users. You've got to hear this one. Listen very carefully. Of Jesus. You know, we never put it that way. But in many, many, many people's mind, there is a kind of an alternative relationship with Jesus that kind of goes like this. I want to use Jesus to get into heaven when I die. What? I want to use Jesus to get into heaven when I die? How can I use Jesus for that when Jesus has offered himself to me as that? Listen very carefully here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. For if you believe in me, you have passed from death to life. Jesus is promising salvation to all of his believers. That's what he offers. Free as a gift. And this guy here is now accusing those who believe that and trust in that of being users of Christ. Yet Christ is the one who offers us salvation. Unbelievable. Let's continue. And there's a deep problem with the gospel and the way that it has been presented because for many, many people, the gospel has become the proclamation of the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. That is an absolute lie. The gospel is the proclamation of the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven. There are no requirements. Christ has done it all for us. He's offering us salvation as a free gift. It's good news. That's what good news. It's a proclamation of good news. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Excuse me, I'm getting a little exercised. <laughs> Sorry. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast 
to the word that was preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Apostle Paul seems to be admonishing us to use this good news because by it we're being saved. And John Ortberg is trying to distinguish between Christians and Christ followers, and he's calling those who trust in Christ for their salvation users of Jesus. Think about that. Now again, we never put it that way. But it'll go something like this. How do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die? Because Christ died for my sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And of course, there's little, if any, discussion about what kind of community heaven might be and what kind of person might I need to be to actually enjoy being in heaven. It's just thought of in this cartoon. Well, that's because the Scriptures doesn't say anything about that. Christ turns me from a goat into a sheep, and I don't have to worry about what the community of heaven is going to be, as if somehow I need to be acclimated to it, you know. That's crazy talk. The Bible doesn't talk to us. It doesn't tell us what heaven's going to be like. Cartoon way is kind of the pleasure factory and hell is kind of the torture chamber. And How do you know you're going to get into the pleasure factory? Because God's going to get people out. And the gospel is, you've been trying to earn your way in, so don't do that anymore. Get on the grace plan. Believe the right stuff about an arrangement that has been made for you, and then you have obeyed the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Wrong. Okay, you're wrong about something. I have obeyed the minimal entrance requirements? No, 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 no. Obey is the wrong word here, John. You are out of bounds. We're not saved by obeying, by believing. Believing isn't something I do in obedience, but believing is faith. That's what faith is. It's faith. It's trust. It's believing in in the promises of God. And even scripture is clear that that faith is a gift from God. And you are attacking that. You are attacking salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And keep in mind, this is a Willow Creek sanctioned event, and this is a Willow Creek speaker. Willow Creek is attacking salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And then you become a user of Jesus. Then, of course, there's no intrinsic connection then to being a disciple, to being a follower. Really, because you're defining a disciple as somebody or a follower as a law keeper. But what you don't understand is those who have been given faith, a fruit of that faith is obedience to Christ. Man, this is just toxic. Absolutely toxic. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You see the progression there? We're saved by grace through faith. We're God's workmanship. We're born from Christ. We're born from God. And then God, because we are his workmanship, creates us in Christ to do good works. The good works flow from faith. This guy is driving a wedge between the two. And he doesn't even understand what a good work is. talking in this session about is your church 
producing followers of Jesus, disciples, or just Christians, commonly understood. A Christian, as commonly understood, I think, is somebody who identifies with a religious subculture. So, you know, this is our team, and then the Buddhists are another team, and the Muslims are another team, and we like it when more people join our team. What? You've got to be kidding me. It's somebody who believes they're going to heaven when they die because they accepted an arrangement to get them in. No, because they were given faith by God, and God did make the arrangements for us because we can't do it ourselves, John. Scripture's clear. In fact, if you would like to go ahead and give it a try yourself, John, you go right ahead. And again, I ask my question. If you are such a good Christ follower, why do you still sin on a daily basis? Because you know you do. But discipleship, making a serious intention to obey everything Jesus said, making a serious intention to do what Jesus said to do, is treated as largely an option. You're defining a disciple based upon law-keeping. You're confusing law and gospel here. You You don't even understand what the law is about. You don't. And you don't understand that our feeble obedience that we do have as Christians flows from the faith that was given to us as a gift. And it is strengthened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the law. Kind of extra credit. And churches are full of this kind of Christian. And then church leaders who spend a lot of time trying to re-motivate or re-excite them so that the church can be successful. And it gets tiring for everybody. It is interesting, I think, that the New Testament uses the word Christian only twice. And um, it actually originated as kind of a derisive nickname. By the way, um, the second time it's used is rather interesting. It's used, it is used in the... uh, uh, book of Acts, and, uh, you know, and it's a name that's brought up as, a, you know, a term of derision. Christians were called, you know, they were first, you know, the believers were first called Christians in the book of Acts. But yet, in First Peter chapter 4, uh, Peter uses the term Christian. Listen to this. He says, First Peter chapter 4, verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. By that name. <laughs> okay, yeah, it only occurs twice, but the second time it appears, it's it's pretty darn important there, John. That's the thing. It, you know, when you say oh, the term only appears so many times, that's really a lame argument. Lame argument. It uses the word disciple two hundred and sixty-eight times. Again, mathetes, Greek a, is a learner. It doesn't say it's an obeyer. It says it's a learner. Why don't you keep that in mind? It's a lot easier to make a Christian, commonly understood. Yeah, because God is the one who makes them. We don't. But the New Testament is a book about disciples. Who were given faith, chosen by Christ, washed and sanctified by His Word and the Holy Spirit. And 
I want to locate the difference a little more precisely when we talk about disciples. Um, I think what I'd like to ask you to do, if you don't mind, just for about 10 seconds or so, is I want to talk about what kind of faith characterizes a disciple. Turn to the person next to you. There's a phrase that we use in the church, saving faith. There's a phrase, saving faith. How would you define that term, saving faith? Would you turn to the person next to you for just a moment? Just take 10 or 20 seconds. How do you understand the phrase saving faith? Let's see. What did I tell the lady sitting next to me? I believe that Christ was crucified for all of my sins and that he was buried and rose again three days later, according to the scriptures. She kind of looked at me like, uh... And said, well, I've made a decision to follow Jesus. <sighs> you know what? I'm going to stop here. I'm going to stop here. <laughs> I don't think I can handle it anymore anyway. Sitting through this last session yesterday, I, I walked out. <laughs> I ended up walking out. Oh, man. Folks, the bottom line is this. Willow Creek and the Reveal Conference, there's some good data that came out of it. But what's connected to this is a full frontal assault against salvation by grace through faith. And Willow Creek is leading the charge. That's what it boils down to. They are promoting a works-based Christianity based upon law-keeping. And even worse, I'll show you examples of this in the days ahead. Even worse... They, they're, they're promoting expository Bible teaching, but the bottom line is they want you to preach the Bible in such a way that you get to that application because that's the most important thing is how to apply this. Listen to my lecture on three-dimensional theology. Again, I'll make that available. So that's kind of the first taste of what it is that happened at Willow Creek at the Reveal Conference. And to say that I was frustrated, to say that I was... Uh, not exactly having a good time to say that I think I needed a stiff drink after some <laughs> sessions would be an understatement. And I didn't, I didn't go and have a stiff drink. I should have, but I didn't. Anyway, um, that's what came out of Willow Creek. And we have got to stand against this law-based version of Christianity because ultimately it will send people to hell. If you would like to uh, email me your comments regarding today's show and what you heard happening at Willow Creek and what was being promoted, what was being attacked, what was being said, you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, I'm Chris Rosebro, your servant in Christ. God bless you. <laughs>